Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. I, I made an assumption, like you know, many entrepreneurs do, that there were others like me. And um, I think in that particular case, I was definitely right. I wasn't 100% correct. I was imagining there would be, you know, swarms of first home buyers who were after this sort of um, housing that I was sort of after. What I learned along the way and have just sort of really solidified uh, working with lots of startups and start is it's a great way to approach a problem, but you do need to do the work to then figure out, okay, I'm pretty sure there's a problem here. I'm feeling it. Those were the insightful words of Jesse Summons, who is Chief of Staff and Operations at Making Things. I connected with Jesse recently following her appearance on a panel at Pause Fest, where she was engaged in vigorous and often floral debate on the merits and dismerits of impact investing. I thought she did an amazing job on that panel and found her to be a really um, great presenter. And I thought, looking at her history as the founder and CEO originally of uh, Nightingale Housing, she's got a long and fascinating um, involvement with the social enterprise and startup sector, followed that with the, her role at Startmate as head of development and outreach. So I was really keen to get her take on a number of things, um, entrepreneurship, social enterprise, um, the way that we frame problems in business and then go about solving them. So it was a terrific conversation. Um, I learned during our um, earlier call and conversation that we share um, the fact that we're both introverts, which, which sort of made it interesting, but we're both introverts in quite extroverted roles day by day. So we got onto a good um, conversation about how to keep energy levels up and how to get that mix right between being really uh, social and also having the time to reflect and do really high quality work. So I'll leave you to it. We've got a bit of housekeeping to cover and then our conversation with Jesse. Welcome back to the podcast. Terrific to have you with us as always. Well, today, a bit of a different start to the podcast. I want to just clarify a couple of questions that I've had regularly over the past year or two regarding the podcast. So think of it as a Sam Harris style, seven to eight minute uh, conversation or discussion of a few key things that keep coming up. The first one is, and I get this one the most common of all the inbound uh, questions is, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. Now, I get this at least a few times a week via inbound emails, introductions to other people who are the ones considering the podcast, in conversation, etc. Just to reframe, this is a bit like me going to an author and saying, I want to write a book. Podcasting is a serious undertaking. You've got to think of it more as a three-year project that requires weekly investment of at least one to two days a week and a few hundred dollars per week, as well as a big initial outlay of between one to three grand for quality equipment, recording and production services, website and social media, etc. So it's not just an ad hoc thing that you can jump straight into. There are a few things to consider around resourcing, time and money. The first thing to ask yourself would be, do you have the kind of time or money to invest in a podcast as a serious three-year time horizon project? And if you do want to do it, you also need to consider if you have an authentic idea that will cut through a thoroughly saturated market. If you don't, that's totally fine. There are many other ways to get your content out there and your thought leadership. You could look at partnering with another podcast, uh, trying to go on a podcast as a guest, or other mediums that might work better for you. 
The next thing that comes up pretty regularly is, is the podcast free? And if it is free, how do you make an income from it? So the short answer to that question is, although it's free to consume, it's certainly not free to create. I spend at least a day each week sourcing quality guests, curating content, promoting the podcast, and planning events for our community. I spend my time and money on the podcast because I believe in the power of authentic conversations to drive positive social change. So this is certainly not a full-time vocation. It's a voluntary project to try and influence people to choose work that can have a meaningful and strong social impact, but also where they're working in areas where they're fortunate to be able to have that social impact to do so better and more effectively. So I don't make any income from the podcast at all, and any money that has been made from our advertising packages goes 100% back into running the podcast. The other question or query I get is, if you're not getting paid by doing the podcast, do you get a high number of referrals from podcast guests to Purposeful, your social enterprise consulting company, and make money this way? Well, I wish that was the case, but I've never got a paid job from doing this podcast, and I'm not sure I ever will. I'm totally at peace with this, and consulting is actually a very small portion of my weekly work. Another thing that comes up pretty regularly are people wanting to come on the podcast themselves or to refer someone directly in to come on the podcast. And these are often by way of unsolicited emails or direct messages um, or even um, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. So there's an assumption out there, I think, that I really need guests to make the podcast run. But I'm really fortunate to have thousands of talented people in my networks and around me. And I think that I could probably podcast on a weekly basis uh, from here on forever and not really scratch the surface of all the great people in Melbourne that I want to talk to. So actually sourcing guests is not a need for the podcast. And at any given time, we've got a backlog of about 10 to 15 uh, guests that we need to play. So if I ever decided to stop one day, there'd still be a good 15 weeks of listening before we were up to date. I'm not sure how other podcasts do it, but at Humans of Purpose, we don't accept self-referrals or unrequested referrals into the podcast, where it's primarily to promote the person, their products or services. I actively seek out and secure all our guests personally because I want to talk to them. That's why all conversations you're listening to, I'm genuinely invested in and curious about the person and their work. They're in the chair because I've curated their appearance as it fits in well with our show and our audience. If you want to self-refer in or are interested in directly or indirectly promoting goods or services, this is marketing and it's not free. We do host occasional guests who have a product or service that is relevant to the needs and interests of our listeners. They pay for these appearances and this money goes directly to supporting the running costs of the podcast. Until I can come up with a better model to offset the cost of running the podcast, this is one way that I can reduce my costs slightly and make the podcast sustainable over time. And so I do still encourage um, occasional marketing and promotions on the podcast, but it's only happened a few times on Humans of Purpose, and I suspect it'll still be an occasional thing that we do. Just on the front of social media and communications, we're going to shift a little bit to doing most of our news announcements, offers, promotions and events exclusively via the podcast and newsletter. We'll still be posting occasionally responding to uh, inbound uh, direct messages and comments, etc. via social, but we're going to pare things back for a bit to focus on our audio stream and newsletter. So please do make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and whatever player you're using and to the newsletter uh, via the link in our show notes or by heading directly to humansofpurpose.com.au where you'll see a pop-up form and you can bang in your email there. The reason for this is uh, twofold. 
I'm a lot busier now with a, a couple of moving projects that have uh, got my attention and also uh, as a result of reading a few books in the break and taking some time away from social media, I found that that actually sits with me quite well to have a bit more distance from social media. So um, we'll be doing that and I hope you'll understand and uh, dip a bit more into our weekly podcast content and to our monthly newsletter. The final thing I get asked fairly frequently is how can we support you to continue to make the podcast and to deliver weekly content of meaning and purpose? Well, the first way is the easiest way. You can buy me a notional monthly coffee by going to www.patreon.com slash humans of purpose, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And that commitment of $4 a month or a dollar per week uh, in the coffee format will enable me to provide you with four great episodes and really support me on my way to making this podcast sustainable. The second way is to become a promoter or advertiser on the Humans of Purpose podcast of your product or service. So talk to your work or if you're the the boss, have a think about how you can spend your advertising or marketing budget to really make make a significant difference um, in the world and create a more meaningful um, product rather than just blowing it on Facebook or Google Ads. To action that, you can just go to humansofpurpose.com.au and click on the sponsorship inquiry form and check out our packages or shoot me an email direct to our virtual assistant at hello at purposeful.com.au. So Jesse, great to have you with us. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Why don't we kick off by learning a little bit about you and your journey into the space? Sure. So um, that's a very, very broad question. I know. I like to go really broad early. I'm sorry if I have a you with the broadness, but take it however you like, but just a narrative of your journey into where you are today. All right. Great. So I kind of went into university not really knowing, uh, having a clear path of where I wanted to go, just very open to exploring, actually tried lots of different degrees um, and then ended up uh, graduating with uh, an arts degree and sort of was really wondering where I would take that. I knew I didn't want to be a curator um, or be in, you know, work in a gallery. So I ended up um, actually uh, working for Victorian Public Service um, in Creative Victoria. It's the best way to enter the uh, public service, not knowing what you're doing and then ending up in the public service. Yeah. Same as me pretty much. It was perfect actually because, I again, same thing, didn't have a clear path or um, knowledge of where I wanted to go. So it was just very open, different ideas. Um, Entered, you know, at the graduate level and then after about a year and a half ended up in the infrastructure team. So looking after um, infrastructure projects that were servicing the creative industries, so gallery refurbishments, um, new developments, that kind of thing as a project manager. And that was kind of like where I just found my groove and stayed there for a few years and sort of learned everything about infrastructure through that avenue rather than through a university. At the same time, I was sort of, you know, understood that there was a bit of a a gap in my knowledge, I guess, of how like development projects were done, didn't have like a great grasp of the um, finances at the time. And so, Use that um, few years to also complete my MBA to, to fill in any gap in the knowledge um, around operations. Sure. And then, um, like, absolutely loved that that period. And then at the end, was sort of like 
had a really good understanding of how developments worked and at the same time was trying to buy my first home and having some problems. Um, and so I ended up actually partnering with some architects who had worked on heaps of the projects uh, that I was delivering in government and created Nightingale Housing as a social enterprise kind of to fix my own problem of not being able to find quality, affordable, sustainable housing at a, at a fair value, at a fair price. And ended up building Nightingale Housing from there. This is this is the long um, story, by the way. No, no, it's, it's actually very short compared to some previous guests. So okay, great. Yeah, I'm <laughs> you're, not... doing, you're doing well for time. Let's go Good, on. not starting at Charlton. <laughs> um, and then from creating Nightingale... In the second year of, um, of building Nightingale Housing, uh, which, yeah, was a, a social enterprise, for those who don't know, to support um, ethical housing developments, uh, I was invited into a program called Startmate, which is Australia's best um, technology accelerator and, um, and really focuses startups which have really high growth. This was uh, like the most incredible eye-opening experience. Um, I had a really solid foundation in business and operations by that point and had built a company for about a year and a half, but I didn't have a lot of exposure to actual startups. So I was sort of building this company as a company and didn't really view it as a technology company, which I guess it really wasn't. Um, and there was this really like eye-opening period of my life. We went to San Francisco, straight into Silicon Valley, Valley to meet some of the best VCs, learn a whole bunch about venture capital, which I didn't know about before, um, and and really got a grounding there. And at the end of the the process, um, what it really brought to the forefront, it's sort of like it's an accelerator in every term of the phrase where it just accelerates um, your business, but also you're thinking about the business, your understanding of where you're going um, with the mission of the business, sort of realize that um, where Nightingale Housing was going with being led by architects was down a very different path to where I wanted to go. Um, ended up jumping ship from Nightingale Housing actually to Startmate, the I company. Love I love it. Which you was, the host. I did, which was just uh, such a sort of perfect transition and then spent the past year just completely immersed in startups um, as the head of outreach and development at Startmate, meeting every founder in the country, doing looking at you know who we were going to invest in or potentially bring into the program itself. Um, I think I met maybe over 250 founders personally, like face-to-face, hearing what they're working on, took me in all sorts of really interesting directions of knowledge, learned about space mining at one point, uh, clean meat, just sort of everything you can think of was like this very rapid learning experience. Uh, But always knew that I eventually wanted to go back into a startup, so not on the investing side, back into an operations role, building a company was definitely um, something that I had a passion for, realized I had a passion for both within government where I worked on seeding some companies Mm -hmm. um, and supporting companies and then with Nightingale building it. And so ended up joining uh, only a month ago now, uh, Making Things, which was a Startmate portfolio company and a company that um, Blackbird, who's their head company, had also invested in. So I've just joined them as chief of staff and, and look after the operations of the company. You've given me so many different avenues for questions. I don't actually know where to start. Maybe where I'll start is just your journey, um, both in the public service, but also your fascination with entrepreneurship. And I like quite early on that you got into Nightingale um, through trying to solve a problem that arose for you, which is like a very common 
early stage entrepreneur thing to do. Talk about that and just, I mean, I suppose like having both sides as a person I think is unique, like having the public sector stuff and the, that kind of systems thinking approach to solving issues, but also the entrepreneurship side from the floor up of solving problems. Yeah, I haven't actually thought about it that way before, but in the public service, um, it's an amazing place to work if you you do care about, I guess, purpose in your career, which I think is the sort of genesis of our chat today, because um, everything the public service does, it's you're working to fix a problem or you're working to enact policies of a government that's been elected by people to solve their own problems. So you can always look at it through that lens. And so it's very satisfying from that perspective. Mm. Um, But what's also uh, a challenge is that these problems that you're trying to solve are so complex. And um, in any role that you're in, you only get to work on a little chunk of it. But what you get a a great appreciation for is, um, is the complexity of these problems and also how systems work together. So the private sector, the public sector and the not-for-profit sector, how they can work together to solve some of these problems, which um, actually I was very lucky to work on a project that where we partnered with the not-for-profit sector, um, some philanthropists and and some um, uh private companies as well to to work on a particular project. So you get this really great appreciation for um, solving very big and complex problems. What uh, And also, yeah, how systems work. What I found particularly frustrating is that you can't move fast. Yes. And... The layers of bureaucracy. Yes, but... Uh, also understood why those layers are there. And they're there for very good reasons. So I'm not having a dig at them at all because they provide excellent protections, Mm -hmm. excellent oversight, make sure things don't really go wrong. Where it's a bit frustrating is things do go slow, which everybody knows. Um, And so I think through like a sense of urgency, being young, having a lot of energy, wanting to go a little bit faster on decisions, um, that sort of led me to entrepreneurship and going, okay, well, I understand how to fix complex problems or complex systems. Um, And I sort of was starting to develop this theory at the time that for things that are very urgent, I I do like the partnership model, Mm. but um, I think this is great actually opportunity to solve some problems um, through the more traditional private business sector. Um, Not all problems, you know, government has a really important role, but there's some really great opportunities um, where there's a nice convergence. I think that's well said. And I think government gives you a really interesting lens into what other problems that exist. Because Mm. before I worked in government, I didn't know that a lot of the social sector problems that are there are actually problems that need to be tackled. Mm. And it's it's sometimes a great, gives you a great space to think about what could business or other sectors do to really, you know, tackle those issues. So for you, did your problem come from yourself or was it more um, something that you saw through your work in government? You're saying yourself it was through renovation? Yeah. Yeah. So so I had a really great understanding of how... um, like developments work, property yep. developments I'm talking about, uh, but I was working on large public infrastructure, so not addressing the private market sure. at all. Um, and then at the same time, I was trying to just buy a house as sort of someone in your 20s sure. um, who's had a job for a while, Most many people are looking at doing or maybe not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, my personal position was I was in a position where I could afford um, an apartment or a property, but I found what was on the market was so low quality yeah. uh, or didn't meet my needs um, as a family with a dog. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was sort of felt like I was in this um, 
category of like people uh, who weren't being serviced by the private development sector. For sure. And I saw there being a great opportunity um, to service. Um, I, I made an assumption like, you know, many entrepreneurs do that there were others like me. And um, I think in that particular case, I was definitely right. I wasn't 100% correct. I was imagining there would be, you know, swarms of first home buyers who were after this sort of um, housing that I was sort of after. What I learned along the way and have just sort of really solidified uh, working with lots of startups and startmates is it's a great way to approach a problem, but you do need to do the work to then figure out, okay, I'm pretty sure there's a problem here. I'm feeling it. You, it, there's a trap you can fall into that many other people have that same problem. Yeah. And what one thing I found really interesting through Nightingale was I thought, yeah, everyone who would be interested in these properties would look exactly like me and be my age and yeah. have my sort of income. But actually, it was very different in the end. Um, it was a there was the hugest, maybe not the hugest demand, but a really large portion of demand was coming from downsizers, and it was just a sector that, uh, you know, I didn't know many downsizers um, and something I hadn't really considered. So I think, yeah, it's a great place to start from, to approach it from um, the perspective of your own problem. But then you do need to do the work to figure out, A, do people, other people actually have this problem? Is it just me? Or B, um, maybe it's not the people I think, but... There, this solution, you know, there is a problem out there that, that needs this solution. That's very interesting. So from all the founders that you've met, is that something that's commonly done well or is it something that's probably a bit overlooked, that kind of validation stage of sort of saying, is this just me thinking for me or what are my blind spots or biases involved in kind of, you know, making that decision that there is a problem that needs to be solved here? I think every founder goes into it with, you know, a bit of biases and that's totally fine. What's really important is uh, to launch something if you can. Obviously, you can't if you're doing working in a highly regulated area, um, but you can still do testing by by having conversations. Mm. Um, good entrepreneurs do it well, that validation process. People who don't go so well sometimes is a bit missing in that validation process. Um, and what you can really learn even from people who do it really well if they find out that there isn't the problem they thought there was. What you might find is that, you know, with a, a slight change of positioning or, or a slight change of the product, you you might hit that product market fit and and you're off. So it's it's a really important um, to, for as entrepreneurs to take that time to do that work. Um, sometimes you just uh, you know, a common trap is just loving the product so much um, that you don't do the testing to see if anyone actually needs it. So it's mm. a very cool product, but actually nobody needs it. Yeah, for sure. Um, or spending too much time in that research phase. So wanting to get everything perfect where you're better off probably just, if you can, launching something not quite perfect um, and then figuring out, you know, as you do it, how, how you can fix it. Yeah, no, that's well said. And I mean, you've met so many founders now. You said about 250 of Australia's best. What stands out to you as sort of like the characteristics of the things that make um, certain founders great, uh, maybe first of all, and then maybe what's missing in some of those founders who you think could have been great but sort of missed the mark a little bit? Oh, so I think the one thing you learn when you meet as many founders as I've met is there is uh, no obvious signals (laughs) Um, and that you're likely to be wrong most of the time. Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, a common trap to, to look for particular signals based on people who have been successful previously, you know, like we're all looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg, like some dude in his 20s yeah. at college or something I like that. I just assume it's like Shark Tank and, they, they, you know, there's some things that just stand out for everyone. Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, it's totally different for Shark Tank. <laughs> okay, good. Um, uh, 
Yeah, so I think your job, um, if you are searching um, for for those very early stage um, pre-seed companies, is to try and um, I guess figure out. I think one thing I, I really was passionate about. Oh, your dog's licking the microphone. <laughs> Still down. Sorry about that. <laughs> one thing I was really passionate about was um, the motivations of the entrepreneur. Sure. So uh, did they think that you know? Silicon Valley was very sexy and they wanted to launch a startup because it sounded cool. Um, Because I think even the best companies um, and definitely the worst companies, things will always get really hard and it's those motivations um, and belief in the product or the vision that will get them through. So that's the the one factor that I would Mm. always look for. Everything else you can pretty much throw out the window. You know, I spent a lot of time doing research, like what are some traits that I'm looking for and sort of came to the conclusion that it was like a, I don't know, a 40-year-old female based on statistics, <laughs> um, you know, but it's, that's again, just completely ridiculous. So that's um, just the, the packaging maybe, but maybe it's yeah. more about, you know, what is the individual's uh, like degree of purpose or their why is their why massive and sort of it's, motivational it's definitely so yeah maybe two parts so definitely their why so why are they doing it um what's driving them what are they actually passionate about um do they care a lot about the problem because um they may know a lot about the problem but how much do they care about it yep. because when it gets hard you'll need to have that care factor to get them through um and the second part i was looking for i think to be a successful entrepreneur is that uh unless you are older and you've done a lot of times most entrepreneurs um i mean you're starting a startup you don't the thing is you don't know yet yep. what's going to happen to the company you don't know every part of the company's operations you don't know how the products are necessarily going to develop and so people who were good at um, taking feedback and had a really good filter for feedback as well. So didn't get excited by every new shiny bit of feedback or opportunity. It had a really strong sense of, um, yep, taking on feedback, uh, constantly um, evolving the way not only the business is operating but the way they're operating as well. Um, And then those people will, will do great anyway. Yeah. Do you look for curiosity or like intrigue as a kind of thing? Yes, uh, there's also, you know, it can go the other way that you just get someone very excited by interesting problems yeah. and um, which again, yeah, it should, again comes back to the mm. why are you doing this because you need to have a very clear vision um, to execute. So the um, the idea is the easy part. Um, the You know, you, anyone can write a great roadmap but the actual execution, um, I guess it's almost like the, the <laughs> um, what's it called when you run a long marathon? Yep. Like the, the, um, With no plan. Yeah, you, you, you need to be able to execute for a long time um, for, the, for any company to work. And I think, you know, we, we look at companies and they sort of seem to pop out of nowhere, but often they're, they're something that someone's labored on for, for 10 years Um with you know a lot of dedication, so so do they have that stamina? That's the word I was looking for. And you need the fire to be burning for quite a while to see things through. Sometimes, absolutely. Uh, let me throw a difficult one at you. Would you rather work with a founder or invest in a founder who um, had a great game plan but not not enough love or why for the company, or a founder who had a lot of why and great love and great passion for the mission but not a great game plan? Oh, definitely the second one. You can anyone can write a game plan. That's you. Yeah. 
that's what an operation well, That's a very quick answer. I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you have a great game plan but you're not really driven by anything yeah. other than maybe money or it sounds interesting and cool, um, it's going to be really hard to have that stamina that yeah. I talked about earlier and you, you've got to have that, that stamina and that focus. Um, you, can figure out, you can figure out the game plan and even people with the best game plans, like you, you need to change it along the way generally. Well, that, that brings me sort of to my piece about sort of purpose-driven investing or mission-driven companies and, you know, sort of that idea that to look at founders or companies that have that sense of mission or purpose is really well articulated and really clear um, or often quite a good bet or look attractive to the market. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how that sits with you, but then also maybe if we can segue a bit into your thinking around impact investing as a space. Sorry, so people who are very like impact driven. Yeah, so just just I, I suppose the trend towards purpose driven business or yeah. uh, people who are very clear about mission or triple bottom line focus. Yeah, I think there's a there's a difference between triple bottom line and purpose driven, and I think uh, you know unless you're the, like sort of the worst kind of person, which you know not many people are. There's lots of people who are driven by a purpose who wouldn't necessarily conceive of it in the triple bottom line thinking. And I think that can be a bit misleading sometimes where you feel like you're pulled in a lot Mm. of directions where sometimes you can be driven by an excellent purpose Mm. without the triple bottom line thinking. Maybe let's step back and clarify Mm. that a little bit. I mean, I've had this question come up a few times with friends and colleagues. Can you be purpose-driven if your purpose isn't altruistic? So just if I I have a really clear mission Mm. and my mission is to go and mine space to make money because money is important or I'm going to mine space because resources could help save, um, solve global warming or something. Uh, is that an important distinction to make and should it matter? It's an important distinction to make, but I don't think that the line can be drawn like that mm-hmm. um, as clearly. So um, if you look at uh, making things, for example, you have a founder uh, Megan Elizabeth, who's incredibly mission-driven um, and has this incredible vision. But the mission that she's on is um, digitizing tools for making, for mm-hmm. craft. Um, there's no particular environmental outcomes, no lives are being saved. Um, so it's not, you know, really as direct as that. It's sure. not either or. It's just, the example is purposely very... Um, <laughs> Black and white, yeah. But but I can see how someone might say that um, it is quite purpose driven to do that because you know communities of craft are good socially for a whole range of groups in society. I mean, you can conceive of it yeah. that way, and yeah. um, I think you know this conversation comes out of the debate that we had at Pause Fest around you know our impact investors wasting framing. their time. Thank you for framing it. <laughs> Um, And, you know, I was, uh, it was funny because I was arguing that impact investors are wasting their time, which of course I went into it not believing, um, having worked with so many incredible impact investors and being the recipient of impact investment through Nightingale. Um, So I thought it was this incredible part of our ecosystem. And then the more I got into it, the more I sort of reflected on, um, you know, some venture capital firms who I've worked with who don't have that specific mission. But if you look at what they're investing in, the majority of it, you know, you could be framed in that way. Um, mm. we're, we're seeing incredible investment uh, in 
um, clean meat, for example. Yep. Um, it's a really good business model. It's it's good for the environment. You know, it's good for many other things. Um, but it's I don't know if many impact investors have backed it, and I don't know if that's just because the opportunity hasn't come up. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think of can think of so many other examples of I've that I've seen, or where there's co investment. So um, there's a, a great company called. Um, Oh, the names just escaped me. But but looking at the hiring process, how can we make it uh, applied? Yeah, applied. Yeah. How can we make it fairer? Um, it's just I think where I've landed to in my own mind mm. is that there's this um, convergence of um, there needs to be this convergence of purpose in the way that people are living their lives and that'll naturally flow to everything, every product that we touch, everything yep. we consume. And so it feels to me more important on the market side, yes. um, on the demand side, yep. that us as consumers or business owners or people just operate you know, out in the world, that we're demanding these things from our products. Yep. And then regardless of what's happening on the investing side, investment will flow into great products which are doing great things mm. like Applied, um, like Beyond Meat in America. Mm. And, and we'll start to, you know, transition to this, uh, I guess, this economy that we all feel a bit more comfortable with. But I actually think it starts on the other side because I, don't, I think companies that exist purely to make money or who do bad things are going to lose their licenses to operate in society. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of companies that just fall into a neutral territory yeah, as well. And I think they're very valuable companies. They're very valid companies. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how we conceive of Netflix, but... I think Netflix is awesome. Personally, I think it's awesome yeah. too. But, you know, it doesn't fall into that. In- it doesn't. It's, but- a, it's certainly not a purpose-driven thing. But I did read an interesting New York Times article mm. today that was talking about how Netflix is doing uh, a world of good by um, actually, for, first of all, there's more there's more global citizens than Americans, so mm. not Americans than Americans now watching Netflix, and there's far more international content that Americans are watching than local content now. So there's a good argument that Netflix is actually helping people to explore um, foreign cultures more, which is interesting. I'm not sure if that falls into the purpose-driven or not bucket. And more diverse content in general, yeah. like watching Russian Dolls recently, something yeah. produced by two incredible women, yep. um, you know, which was – when I was growing up, just not a thing to yep. even have female producers. And so that di- I'm seeing a lot more diversity of content. So, you know, you can look at it through the purpose lens, but I, I think it's it's a bit broader than that. And I think um, purpose is sort of going to touch everything that people are investing in now. It's just not as clear-cut as true bottom line. It's a very good point. And it's sort of, it's sort of a bit like market corrective as well. And mm-hmm. what you said about social license to operate, I think is such a good point because it's almost like if you don't sort of play by the rules now or the ethical norms that have moved a lot more to the sort of center, um, you're not going to survive. People will just vote with their, with their feet and their wallets and move on. Absolutely. And I wonder whether we'll see that um, as a result of the Banking Royal Commission. Do you have a sort of view about what people will do, whether people will sort of start to support smaller, more ethical banks or? I don't know what's going to come out of it. I I don't know, um, you know, if they lost their license to operate, you know, a long time ago, sort of the social license, not their actual licenses. But people just didn't know what other options were or, you know, there's lots of conservative people out there who just, um, you know, they don't necessarily like it, but they don't know where else to go. And I think what it might do is give a platform for real alternatives. Um, And I also think, um, you know, as, as younger as sort of millennials who are digital natives um, get older, 
they are much more used to having um, a plethora of options and mm. very comfortable with trust in the digital age. And yeah. so where you maybe had to, you know, have a, a big office or something in the past or be a big bank on the corner of a fancy street, um, you know, now... I'm personally very comfortable with signing up to a bank that has no offices like Bank, for example, which is actually owned by NAB. Um, But there are other examples like that. And I I think it just means that there'll be a lot more consumer choice, which just seems like a really good thing. Yeah, I love that too. I think that trend of um, decentralization is key. And I think it's also interesting to live in a time where you've got an app for everything and like services wrap around you more than you need to go to them. Like I think now about food and transport and everything, like there's not much that I can't do from my phone, which is I think scary. It's good, but it's also a bit concerning. Why is it concerning? It's concerning because I think um, it encourages um, social disconnection. So unless you're using it for the purposes of connecting with friends. And I think it's a very interesting example because – you know, we, we, as we get busier in our 30s, married and have kids and whatever, this is, I'm talking about my sort of friendship groups, it's sort of like people drift a bit and using WhatsApp now to create sort of intentional groups for people to sort of chat and also like get together on a regular basis for me is a, an exercise in like using tech for good. But then there's the converse and like a number of friends have talked to me about, um, you know, Facebook addictions and just wasting all this time on apps and what they're doing to counteract that. Do you have any digital detoxification kind of rituals or? (laughs) Um, My bad habit uh, was waking up and immediately reading the news on my phone. Oh, man. It's terrible. (laughs) That was was the habit that I was sort of addicted to. What news were you reading? Oh, just like what's on Fairfax, uh, what's on Google News, what's on Twitter. Uh, So not so much social media, but just reading, you know, what's happening in the world and getting all excited about things which don't really affect my life in any way. And, um, and don't really sort of increase my knowledge. Um, so I read over summer Atomic Habits. Oh, I just ordered that. Was it good? <laughs> it's fantastic. And I, does I he really tell enjoyed you it. Not do that stuff? He doesn't tell you not to do it. He tells you, um, he gives you processes which you can use to, to break those habits. Cool. And so, um, this year I've been very conscious about waking up and immediately doing something which is not grabbing my phone and reading the news and so far so good it's worked probably the first time in a few years which I haven't um you know immediately just started reading all the news headlines do you think that's um had a positive overall impact on your wellness or it has but uh yeah again I'm not as like black and white on whether technology is increasing social isolation I think sometimes it's blamed for it but I think there are other lifestyle factors like the way our cities are being developed the way our our working lives are being developed you know with it's a lot of remote working. That's one of my concerns. You know, with um, we work remotely as a team at yes. the moment, uh, not with everyone, but with some people in our team, I'm worried just depending on where they're living, like what location. So if they're living in a city, we've got people who don't live live um, in a city, you know, are they getting that social interaction? Yeah. Would people actually know what's going on with them if you can't see someone's face? So looking at ways which we can counteract that um, through our working practices. I think we're something that's, you know, could be, that we're getting too far removed is like processes. You know, if you can just do everything on your phone, what does it take to, um, you know, order food and make food? But you you made a really good point the other day. Like when I suggested we have a coffee and you said let's do a Google Hangouts, like that was a very like 
good option. I hadn't done a Google Hangouts before, <laughs> but um, that, that works really well because it's really efficient for both of us. But then there's like, um, there's that line that you get to where it's like, oh, I could have nine um, video conference meetings today, or I could have a couple of coffees. And like, you know, what mix do I kind of want to hit with my person in person interaction versus digital? And that's like, that didn't used to be a thing, but now that's a choice we have to make. Yeah, I personally, I think it's the most fantastic thing ever. You know, the only resource or the my most pre- precious resource is my time. Um, and, uh, you know, having coffees a day, you know, ha- the people that ask for coffees, it's everyone from people who wants to sell you things or get advice or all your friends. Um, yep. And so you've got to be really intentional about how you spend your time. And mm. now that there is that connection, like you reached out to me over LinkedIn after meeting at a, a, um, at a conf- at Pause Fest, yep. uh, we didn't know each other. And um, so without, you know, having any context, mm. it was really important. I use um, either it's just a quick conversation that doesn't need a personal meetup that I'm having, or um, it's, I sort of use it as a bit of a screening process as well yep. before deciding, do I want to spend, um, you know, an hour of my time with this person and then working remotely. I'm very conscious to generally, I schedule one to two in-person meetings a day and Mm -hmm. no more, no less, because I'm not productive Mm -hmm. if I'm just chatting and having coffee all day. Um, and one thing I learned about myself last year, which I actually didn't know was that my working style is relatively introverted. So I like to be alone in a room, just typing away at a computer. I don't generally listen to music. Um, and I find having been in like an open plan office quite distracting. So what working remotely this year has allowed me to do is it's, um, allowed me to really craft like each part of my day intentionally. So have one to two meetings generally around lunchtime or or clustered at the start or end of the day, spend the rest of the day or certain blocks of hours just chipping away at things, doing email or documents or Mm. whatever. Um, And then maybe um, having some quick sort of online meetings where there's not a lot of detail that's needed. That's good. So what I like about that is the criteria, the screening and the system. I think that's mm-hmm. very important. And I think for myself, you know, I've developed um, some some things that I do as well around, um, I don't know how you feel about LinkedIn generally, but I generally get no one I want to contact me, contacts me. And I have to outreach to people I want to contact, but I don't want to be that pile of people they don't want contacting them. So it's like quite a hard thing to get mm-hmm. right. But certainly... Um, having that screening time to sort of see whether you click before you're going to sort of have that next meeting is really important. Yeah. Yeah, And it's not in a a jerky way Mm. of like, you know, I'm too good. Absolutely. No, please. My inbox is open. Hit me up on Twitter DMs and LinkedIn. I love it. I Mm. love cold Mm. outreach actually. Um, But You you need to be able to filter it. Well, yeah, it's just that time of establishing, you know, do we want to talk about the same thing? Maybe, maybe not. Mm. Um, or, you know, if it's someone asking for advice, which happens. Um, I'm sure frequently for you. Well, quite a bit, depending on like what space it's, do I actually have any advice that I can offer you? Yeah. Or do I feel like you're going to get something meaningful out of it as well? Mm. Um, because I don't want to waste your time in giving you bad advice or advice that isn't relevant. So just making sure for both of us that it's going to be a valuable use of both of our time. Oh, that's very um, courteous thinking about the other person's efficiency as well. I love that. Um, now, you mentioned a book before, Atomic Habits, and I know that you're an avid reader. You're in two book groups, you mentioned. Talk to me about um, what it's like to be in a book group, first of all, and also like what your reading process is and your goals for the year. Yeah, so 
any colleague who's ever worked with me is probably laughing at this point. Um, my book groups is like probably the main thing I talk about. Um, they're very important to me. So I'm in one um, with a really interesting group of diverse people who are definitely not my friendship groups. Some of them are, but some of them we actually were reflecting. I think our book group's been running for three or four years now and we're sort of reflecting that we don't know how these people sort of got in or who they were connected to. <laughs> it's amazing. But they just seem to have been there for years yeah, and now we've... conversations would be epic. Oh, they're so good. There's, um, yeah, a lot of diversity in professional and personal background. Um, and we had to do a bit of backtracking to figure out who knew someone and it was someone who'd moved overseas years ago and we had a very sort of tenuous connection with, had invited <laughs> this person in and we'd just been meeting, you know, every month for three years and had this sort of relationship that's only based around debating books, but yeah. with spirits of open and healthy debate. So one is um, pretty open, but generally focused on either um, philosophy um, or, or historical fiction, um, something where you feel like the criteria I like to think of it is that someone wouldn't have picked up this book, but once you do, you're glad that you read it or you've learned something. Ooh, nice. So um, I think I wrote a blog on it last year about some of the books we've covered. So um, Patriotism, which is um, a Japanese book written maybe in the 60s um, or a, lo- a long time ago mm. that I just would have absolutely never picked up. Um, uh, what's another book we've done at the moment? We're doing Dead Man Dance, which is um, about Western Australia Indigenous communities. Cool. Actually, I'm not very far into it, which is why I'm not giving a better description of the book. <laughs> Um, the Tall Man by Chloe Hooper, um, Siddhartha, just everything. Oh, is that the Hermit Hess one? Yes. I've read one of your books. Amazing. Fantastic. Um, uh, what have we done? Uh, David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Um, pro- I've got to read one of his books. I haven't done any of his stuff yet. Can highly recommend Consider the Lobster. Yeah. So, yeah, this full buffet of books and genres. Um, and then the format is the person leading the conversation will give some context, the author and history, mm-hmm. and then they'll really host the debate. And the rule is everybody has to speak and give an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that no one can dominate the conversation. You get some really interesting opinions. Um, and it just feels like chicken soup for the soul if i can that sounds like a great group and like i think the stickiness of that group the fact that it's lasted so long um so regularly with people who don't even know how they know each other that's a valuable group yeah i think we've just created this space where people feel like they're they're getting some value out of it like it's a space to debate something um you know that you might want to debate what did i do i think i did cat's cradle yeah cat's Uh. cradle who's that by that kurt vonnegut Kurt Vonnegut, oh, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so that's probably one of my favourite books. I yep. find it like hysterically funny. Yeah, he's a, he is such a funny writer. I, I love his stuff. I think, what was the book that I read of Vonnegut a while ago? Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, that would be the one. So yeah. the classic. I went through a stage of like trying to just um, pick off classics, but mm. I think like, sorry, I'm cutting off. I do want to hear about the other group as well, and then I'll throw in my two cents. Yeah, yeah. so um, I think it's yeah, something, a topic that someone yeah. wants to discuss, um, and I think because we jump around so much, you just get these really interesting opinions. Um, and then the other one I'm in is just more of um, a business and like work kind of book club. So good, such yeah. good balance. So we read, um, I guess, yeah, more if you want to call them like productivity books. Productivity books. So Atomic Habits, um, Thinking Fast and Slow was one. I think I've read 10 this year. So when I say read, um, some of them are on Audible, which I've become completely obsessed with. (laughs) So you, like I always like to ask, do you count reading as listening? Like listening is still reading? Yeah, I do. Yep. I, I take yeah, I fair. take information in the same way. I don't yep. think whether you're looking at it with your eyes or no, listening with totally your ears. No, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious because, like the you know, like you're listening. 
but it's the same. It's exactly the same it's content. Listening is reading, you know. Yeah, you're and reading through your ears. I think yeah. it's the same state where I'm generally giving something. You know, it's enti- my entire attention, and I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I think with, if it's like with TV, sometimes I'm kind of doing other things, um, so I'm not sort of thinking mm. about it as deeply or, or sort of pausing and contemplating. Yeah. So um, that yeah. So the second club's called Rat Poison Squared after. You're nodding, um, Warren Buffett calling, calling Bitcoin rat poison squared. <laughs> I love so, Warren Buffett. Yeah. He came out and slammed Trump today. Did you see that? I, I haven't seen he it. just released his latest uh, shareholder letter, which everyone gets quite excited about, worth, worth a read. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, he's fascinating. And I think, I mean, so have you also got a target? I think you mentioned you got a book reading target for the year or no okay and i don't i don't really believe in them i think we've set a ridiculous list of like 100 books that we want to tackle um sometimes you get more time when you're traveling you get more time to sort of chip away at them um i I have a dog and i walk him twice a day so um now i'm I'm getting through a lot more and (laughs) um by listening and walking uh but no we don't we just sort of check in with each other and just say you know where are you at and try and be on the same book at the same time but there's not that sort of formal discussion and sort of dinner and wine and cheese night like with the other book group and it's more just about making sure that we're constantly uh learning i love it i love it so what can you recommend what has been the most interesting or useful productivity book you've read recently Mm, I don't. Sorry to pick up on every little thing. I I don't know if it's it's not necessarily productivity. It's more just making sure. Like I absolutely loved thinking fast and slow. Really, I found some of the content you know almost shocking, and in realizing how faulty my own thinking is, I like to think of myself as an incredibly logical person who can look at the facts without you know getting swayed by my own opinions, and just realize that that is an incredibly hard thing to do. and so I really enjoyed that. I really, last uh, year we read um, Warren Buffett's The Snowball or the, the Alice, I think it's Schroeder, um, biography. I have read it. I've just seen the HBO documentary, which I thought was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book. It had a lot of historical context, yeah. which I found interesting. Um, and another book, which is not exactly, it's not entirely business. So sometimes we give it, um, in that book club, we give ourselves the challenge of learning about cultures we don't know about. So this year I read a book um, called The Orphan Master's Son, which is about North Korea. It's fiction, Ooh, but nice. um, it's a country I know not almost nothing about other than, you know, what we all sort of see in the media, which almost seems satirical sometimes. So trying to understand like different cultures, ways of thinking through fiction. Yeah. Um, and then a nonfiction one was Life and Death in Shanghai, um, which was about a woman who was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution. And again, China isn't a place that I've been. So how do you travel without actually leaving your home? It's it's through books. As, as well said, I, somebody said on a podcast the other day that I listened to that reading fiction, um, so reading nonfiction is the what and the how, and reading fiction is the why. And you get it such a special lens into, um, you know, history by reading fiction, the, the texture that you don't get through nonfiction. Mm. Um, so that's, it's very, um, it's a lovely way to think about it, I think. Um, so I did want to ask you um, a little bit about jumping back to, uh, start mate a little bit and also what you're doing now at, um, in, uh, making things. Talk to me about the, the choice of role title when you, you've gone with your chief of staff there. Yep. So that can mean different things in different contexts. Uh, the West Wing would have it one way or some of our <laughs> political offices. How do you coin it and um, talk a, bit, a little bit maybe about your role? Yeah. So when um, Megan, who's the founder, I started, um, or co-founder, when we started chatting, we were chatting in the context of it being an operational role. That that was what she was looking for, um, someone to head up operations. Um, 
and I actually suggested the title to her and I sent her a number of articles about the role of a chief of staff in a technology startup because it's quite an established role in a political context and that's, um, you know, having worked in the public service for quite a long time, I'd seen the role in action and how critical it was in the context of politics and um, public service and um, I thought it was a really interesting role because there's, uh, you know, an op- a part of it is just getting stuff done, so operations, yes. yep. but it's also much more strategic than that. Mm. And then at an even higher level, just supporting the person who's leading, so whether that's the elected official or politician or um, or the CEO, supporting them to do all facets of their role. So very, very broad, much broader than just purely um, company operations. So I suggested that title. Um, Meg and I bounced back and forth on it. Um, she, I think she sent me some articles back around expanding on the role. Yep. And she just said, when I was reading through this description, I was just nodding. So um, we sort of came to it very quickly that this was the type of role that she was quite keen on, mm. that I was quite keen on playing. And we just basically took it from there and started exploring what it would be. And I think I said to her, you know, the way I see it is um, when you're running very fast as a startup, um, when you're the CEO and and being a really early stage company, there's not all those support structures in there, yes. is it's very easy to get pulled into operational fires within a company, which there are, always are being a startup. And it's easy to get drawn, um, sucked into the vortex of what's happening right now. But as a CEO, it's incredibly important that you're looking ahead and focusing on the future of the company, you know, what's the move, you know, two steps from now yep. and that I could play a role within the company um, of working on the, you know, getting all of our ducks in a row, what's mm. happening right mm. now, making sure we're complying with everything we need to be complying with. Have we filed our taxes for this year to free her up to, to play more of that strategic looking forward role? And I would be the eyes looking back and, and also supporting um, the team. So when you have a really new team, obviously there's like, you know, storming, norming, performing and um, being, I was actually very clear when I was talking to people um, within Startmate of, you know, what I was going to do next and that I want to go back into an operations role. Uh, they asked me, you know, is what stage of company? And I was like, definitely seed. I love being there where everything's a complete mess. I yep. love bringing order to chaos. I yep. get so much satisfaction from that role um, and supporting people like staff in their own roles and having, um, you know, a deep understanding of what everyone in the company is working on and the best way to support them from an operational perspective. So that's what um, I brought to Megan. We sort of um, jammed on it and went back and forward and we just both sort of knew that that was a role that would be great for making things. Perfect. So talk to me a bit about the motivation for the shift from sort of investment or VC to being in a company that you'd funded. Yeah, so so Startmate, uh, my role there wasn't exactly. Oh, it was it was like the very upper top of the funnel of um, VC, which was finding the companies sure. um, rather than uh, establishing sort of the long term relationships that a, a VC um, might establish or doing sort of the due diligence or going through the process, of the investment process that a VC might go through. So um, in that role, um, head of outreach and development, which I mentioned earlier, yep. I basically just, it was my role to know every startup, every founder in the country 
um, to have a chat with them, um, uh, tap into networks of people, particularly like universities, for example, or there's this emerging sort of network of um, startup support mm. programs oh, yeah. um, around the country, tapping into key people there. So like accelerator programs? Accelerator whatnot? programs. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of programs being run through universities and just informal networks as well. Yep. Um, or private networks that have been set up. It was my role to to make connections and um, offer support if we could. So having um, you know the resources that, or I guess insight that a VC um, group has. So what what a VC is looking for, how to pitch to a VC, um, providing that sort of um, resource to them. And and what a cool role. <laughs> uh, what I like about your journey yeah. is you're always across systems. I, I love that. I mean, that's kind of wide view, but then being able to add structure and kind of harmony to each, um, I suppose, lens into that is very interesting. Yeah, it was it was incredibly interesting. Um, I think I mentioned, I can't remember, I think it was off air that I actually realized that I was a bit of an introvert. So yes. it was incredible, but um, by the end of it, I just – I didn't. Well, I didn't want to chat anymore. I wanted. Well, that was going to be my question yeah. too. I mean, I did pick up some introvert vibes. Like, despite running a podcast, I too am also an introvert, so I get my energy from actually my downtime. Um, although I love the podcast, obviously, it's like still, you know, I need to have that solace or that kind of mm-hmm. solitude. So, I mean, how did you reconcile that, or was it sort of through that that you learned more about yourself and that you needed something different? Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's where I learned. I yeah. didn't know yeah. that I was. I hadn't. Did you find yourself like um, very tired, like from all those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and maybe a bit worried that you know I want every interaction with someone to be kind of meaningful, and maybe yes. worried that it wasn't meaningful. Yeah. Um, and I remember the CEO James. He said to me, "No, it is because this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing." <laughs> um, and I was like, "It just doesn't feel like I'm getting anywhere." Um, which is not true because, you know, when we looked at the stats, you know, we had the most number of applications each round and um, more diverse applications. So, you know, I knew that it was going well, but um, ultimately I knew that um, what you don't get to do as an investor, and I think this really needs to be clear for anyone who's wanting to get into investing, is you don't get to build the company. Um, You can provide advice, but you're not operating the company um, even if you're on, involved at a board level, again, you're not in an operations role. You, you're not telling the CEO the next move to make. Mm. You're a sounding board or you're offering advice or you're offering some oversight. Um, so that's a really clear distinction to make. So I think people get very excited about, um, you know, potentially being an investor or yes. in VC uh, because it seems... It's glorified. It's glorified, um, but, you know, it's incredibly hard work. Um, most VCs are probably, you know, if I'm allowed to say this, like there's, there's always, you know, you're driven by a level of anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Have I, particularly like well, with early stage investing, mm. have I made the right decision? You know, market forces could completely ruin this great idea. Um, and you are investing other people's money. Yep. It's not your own money. Um, so in that respect, it's very different to angel investing. Yep. So, um, you know, maybe if you are thinking about getting into it, um, I don't like to offer advice because I'm not an investor, but, you know, maybe dipping your toe in through some form of angel investing, if you can, would be a good way to to get exposed to the ups and the downs um, of that role. And yeah, you're making these strategic decisions um, about investing other people's money, but you don't actually have control to operate that company. So you're investing in the the founders or the the management of the company um, without the ability to to pull 
like like big levers if things are not on track. What, what about advice that you'd have for entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs who are looking to um, go into startup? Just given our earlier offline chat, I suppose, about the similar um, celebrification, if you like, of startup in Australia and I think Melbourne particularly, it's become very sexy. People just sort of think they can maybe go from their um, job in a corporate law firm or whatever else to just being a very successful, you know, big raise startup founder. Just curious to get your reflections on that. Yeah, which is definitely possible. And um, one of the Blackbird analysts who lives in Sydney, um, Tip, she's been running a great series, which I think is available online about jumping from the corporate world to the startup world and what it's actually like, what it's like to raise money. Um, So I think if you're thinking of going down that path, um, like the same with investing, it's glorified being a startup founder, Um, which if anyone who has been a startup founder or knows a lot of startup founders, they're probably sort of giggling at the moment because there is um, (laughs) it's hard work. It's a lot harder than um, being in a corporate, but it can also be um, a lot more satisfying as well. So if you're thinking about going down that path, go along to uh, some quality startup events um, and use that time to chat to founders and maybe, yeah, find some people who you feel like um, have been down that path before, people who've raised money, people who haven't raised money and chat to them about, you know, what it's really like Um, because I think that's the only way to get insight is to talk to people who've done it before. That's great advice. Now, finally, I just want to ask you about your own um, personal approach to development and learning. So I notice you sort of do, you're a bit like me, you sort of seem to do like a course or some kind of progression each year. Um, Is that uh, a pattern that's very deliberate for you? And how do you think about what you're going to do each year? Um, It didn't start off being very deliberate. It was more just, you know, following threads of curiosity, identifying parts where I didn't have the type of knowledge I wanted to have to make decisions. And then as time's gone on, it's become a lot more deliberate where, you know, you only have this sort of short amount of time and um, there's this great amount of offerings to and ways to learn, like become quite obsessed with going to, you know, general assembly short courses. Um, some of them are, you know, pretty low cost or I even went to one the other night that was free and it was really, really valuable. And it's also a great way to network. Absolutely. I just think, um, why not? So I just wanted to ask you a bit about your approach to learning because each year you sort of seem to do something that's really helpful um, development-wise and um, maybe what's your take on that and how do you go about that each year? Mm, So it didn't start off as being particularly intentional. Like each year I will do a course, I will do this degree. Um, So it started off just me identifying areas where I didn't feel as confident and wanting to build some confidence or identifying areas of weakness um, and wanting to fill those gaps to help me progress in whatever I wanted to progress in. And then I just found that, you know, it's, it's really, I personally find it really enjoyable to learn and it, I feel like it helps me in, because my career has sort of been, you know, a little bit non-linear, it helps me when I'm making the next step to have um, context or things I can offer. So at the moment, um, I am become sort of quite obsessed with doing the general assembly courses. Um, they're very sort of up to date. There's knowledge that doesn't get offered, you know, through more traditional 
means like an MBA and it's, you know, most of them are pretty low cost or even free. So it just seems like, why not? You've yeah, got this limited time. You may as well use some of it to learn other parts to socialize. And I just find it very enjoyable. I think other ones that I've done, like I think before we started recording, you mentioned um, the director's course at ARCD. ARCD, yeah which doesn't seem like such a, an obvious one to do, um, particularly if you're in startup land and it's very focused on public companies. Yeah, I was going to say, because I've done it, I thought like maybe it wouldn't be ideal for your like line of work, but what did you get from it? So I got so much from it. Um, at the time, it was relevant because Nightingale had a board sure, sure. and it was a, a different structure, but I think so many of the principles um, just flow through to any board and it gives me a, what it gave me um, is a really deep appreciation for what responsibilities board members have and now not being on a board um, and sitting on the other side where I'm preparing information for the board what information needs to be prepared how's it presented to help them do their own duties that's that's actually exactly what I got out of it as well because I think you know we all report to boards in some way or another or we sit on boards but mm. knowing that delineation and like um, who's who's what player in the game plan it's it's really helpful yeah yeah um so look this has been fantastic how can people learn more about you and connect online or learn more about your work as well yeah sure probably the best way is either linkedin or twitter (laughs) whichever one uh you normally play in um they can feel free to contact me my dms are open on both um yeah say hi and yeah we can start chatting awesome well thanks so much for coming pleasure thanks for having If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.